Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at ShiftWheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that gets so excited every time the hotline rings. I'm your host, Amanda. Well, as I told you in the last episode, today is all about the hotline. We'll be taking calls from Aaron, Sophia, Lizzie, Gabriella, and Sammy. We have so much to talk about. We're going to cover so many things. It's quite a journey. Before we plug in the landline and get down to business, I just wanted to remind you that you can support Close Horse and, well, me via Patreon. You can find more information at patreon.com slash podcast. Becoming a patron gives you access to exclusive episodes, a weekly extra credit reading email from me, as well as pins and stickers if you want them. I always struggle with promoting the Patreon and I worry about talking about it too much because to be honest, sometimes I get annoyed with my local NPR station when I feel like they're spending way too much time fundraising. And as a result, the listeners, you know, us, we hear less actual content and specifically WHYY in Philadelphia does what I think of as way too much fundraising. Just all of the drives will go on for like weeks 
And there's just so much like haranguing and guilting about how much we should all be paying for the content, which I get. I was an NPR supporter until I lost my job. I think it's a super valuable service. But I also found out that WHYY pays its CEO a million dollars a year, which seems pretty wild and unnecessary to me. So even in Philly, I was continuing to support KCRW, the LA NPR affiliate, because you know, I just felt like my money might be more useful over there. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. And I do believe that listeners who have the means should support their local NPR station. They listen a lot. Have you tried to listen to regular old commercial radio stations? It's like 50% commercials. (laughs) So I see why that crappy commercial radio is free to the listener, right? Because it's not really free. You're hearing all those ads. You're kind of selling your brain space back to them, right? But NPR is, you know, much better content. There's amazing journalism and, you know, most importantly, no commercials. It's a service and a good one at that. But (laughs) I didn't mean to just persuade you to support NPR. But if you do, I'm glad you did. Like I said, major NPR household over here. What I was trying to say is that I always feel really awkward asking you to support the podcast with your money. But then again, much like all of those reporters over at NPR, I'm working from the moment I get out of bed until it's time to go back to bed almost every day. I mean, I am working so hard. And it's worth it, you know, when I see how much it is changing the minds of listeners, when I see all of you posting about what you've learned, or when you message me to tell me how much you appreciate the information I've shared and how much it's made you think about the way things are. But Clothes Horse is a full-time job, like extra mega full-time job. And it's not just a hobby for me. Unfortunately, it's also a job that pays me about, well, currently $2 an hour, which is obviously not sustainable. I've been lucky because I've been able to collect unemployment for most of the pandemic so far, But to be honest, the unemployment system here in Pennsylvania is so broken that I haven't actually received any money since 2021 began. And I've cried so much. I've spent so much time trying to get through on the phone, having fruitless conversations, being sort of given the runaround, tweeting my elected officials, talking to them on the phone, tweeting the Department of Labor and Industry. I mean, I could go on and on, but it's been really, really hard on my mental health, (laughs) like really, really hard, all of this economic insecurity and uncertainty. So what does this mean for me? Well, it means I've been putting food, cap food, my phone bill, my insurance, everything on my credit card. Fortunately, Dustin is still working, so he's been able to cover the rent and heat. And once again, this is not your problem. I'm just trying to give you some context for like where my mind is right now. And it's kind of driving home the fact that I either need to aggressively try to find a job. So far, I've had no luck, but you know, I could get I could get more brutal about it. It might not happen because currently, I want to say there are about four times as many people without jobs than there are actual available jobs. But maybe I could pull something off. Of course, then I would have to quit making clothes horse because you know I'd be working somewhere else. Or I could really push myself harder to turn clothes horse into my full-time job, which is, of course, my dream. I don't know why I just said I wanted to turn it into a full-time job, because it already is. I guess I want to say that a full-time job that also pays me a living wage. 
To do that, I have several options. And one is that I can take actual ads, probably from companies that I don't like, because they're the ones with the ad money right now. Of course, to get those ads, I'll have to change my content to be a little bit less, oh, I don't know, controversial and political. And then what's the point of doing the podcast in the first place, right? The other option is to continue to talk about Patreon, which like I said, is very difficult for me. It's right up there with trying to call a stranger on the phone, but I know you all push through that all the time to call and leave hotline messages. So maybe I just need to get over my weird phobia about asking all of you to support me on Patreon. (laughs) I don't wanna ask you for money. It's just not who I am. But a friend recently said, hey, you're working for your listeners So let them pay you if they can. And she reminded me that I'm completely devaluing my work by not clearly communicating the amount of actual work involved. So I'm telling you that right now. And also, you know, she reminded me that I lecture all of you all the time to not devalue your work. So why am I devaluing mine? So if you have the means, please consider supporting Close Horse via Patreon. Or you can send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Once again, if you don't have the means to do that, I totally get it. I mean, I am in the same boat right now. I'm just glad to have you here listening because, you know, a podcast doesn't exist without listeners. And I am so grateful to have your time every week and to hear from all of you how important this this community is to you. So... If you can, please support. And if you can't, I don't love you any less. But that's my spiel about Patreon. (laughs) You know, it's really, really hard to be vulnerable and explain my true situation. But maybe at the very least, it will inspire more of you to be vulnerable and honest about your own pandemic struggles right now. There's so much shame around being unemployed, being broke, being frightened, being lonely. I mean, these are... These are all things that we are confronting right now, and all of us are. It's so universal. We need to stigmatize, sort of glossing over everything. I think I feel like that's a thing that started with the rise of social media. I mean, I guess it went on before, but it's like even bigger that you have to pretend that everything is just so lovely and great all the time. And, you know, it is not. I talk to some of you all the time about the struggles you're facing, and I would just say, Let's continue to open up to one another because I guarantee you're not alone in anything that you're feeling right now. This whole thing, everything that we're experiencing right now, this didn't happen to us because we're bad people or bad employees or I don't know, we didn't wear the right outfits, you know? It happened because the pandemic has uncovered all of these flaws in our capitalist system and our governments, in our society. I mean, I, this is a hard time. It's going to change who we are. But my feeling is like we can control who this changes us into. And I want to harness all of the bad things I've been experiencing and use them to make change in the future, to make me stronger, to make me more passionate, more committed. I want to learn from all of this. And, you know, I'm on that journey alongside of you. So, Let's see what we can pull off, all right? Okay, well, it's time to work the phone lines. And first up, we have a message from return caller, Aaron. 
Hey Amanda, it's Erin the Librarian here with another question for you. Uh, but first, thank you for answering my dress code question. And I gotta say, hearing about how like Levi's and Dockers invented business casual was like, really fascinating. Uh, and also, I recorded my voice on my computer as opposed to calling the hotline. Uh, not as fun, but after hearing my voicemail recording, I think I forgot how to hold a phone to my face. Um, anyway, what are your thoughts on personal style? Um, or developing personal style. Uh, by getting to know you through like your podcast and social media, it seems like you have a pretty rad personal style going on. You wear lots of dresses, pink, cottagecore, um, but I'm assuming it took some time to get there. And like me, you also like succumbed to the temptations of fast fashion in the aughts. Um, it also seems like it's in fast fashion's best interest for us not to have personal style and like just buy all the things. Uh, for me, the best advice I got when I was trying to get over my compulsive shopping habit was to determine my personal style and like stick to it. And for me, it's not something that like can be described in one or two words, but in my mind, I know what my personal style is. And it's not that I can't admire clothes that don't fit within the boundaries of my personal style, but like knowing the types of clothes that I feel best in keeps me from feeling like I need to buy like absolutely everything I like. Um, and if you're curious, the best way I can describe my personal style is, well, like masculine with bits of feminine. And I hate it. I hate that I couldn't find like better, like non-gendered adjectives to describe it. I don't know if you can think of anything better, but anyway, I like, I wear lots of jeans, button downs, jackets, but like with stripes, like floral prints and like fun accessories. So that's kind of the best way I can describe it. Um, Anyway, do you have any like good advice on finding like one's personal style? Um, I think the fast fashion movement, like taking over during my more formative years, like definitely made it difficult for me. Um, just cause I was so overwhelmed and just like, got really excited about clothes being so cheap. Um, I also kind of wish clothing brands kind of went back to having their own like specific style. Like I think one big example is Banana Republic, like having <laughs> safari themed clothes. Um, I know you've mentioned like stores just kind of like looking all the same now. Um, like also, what do you think the best ways for people to find their personal style are without like relying on fast fashion or like buying a ton of stuff? Um, I've recently read some books and articles on the subject and I found some like good advice from people on YouTube. Um, and then like there's just like observing people in the wild or like finding scans of old magazines online. Um, but I think for just determining what I like to wear, it was a lot of like trial and error. Um, and I guess that's like one good thing that came out of all my over shopping was that I figured out what I liked and kept and then you know, kind of reflected on the things that I ended up selling and donating and, you know, figuring out why I did that. Um, anyways, I'm super excited for the blog launch. And um, thanks again for creating such an awesome community. Uh, take it easy. So first off, as you probably heard, Erin did not actually call the hotline to leave her message. She recorded it on her computer and she emailed it to me, which you can also do. The sound quality is definitely better. I'm sure you heard a difference there. And also, you can talk as long as you want. So some of you, I know, I'm not going to name names, but some of you are, you're a three to four message caller. <laughs> this might be a better option for you because then you can speak uninterrupted. You can play it back for yourself. Um, and you can just email it to me. If it's like a massively huge file, you can share it with me on Google Docs and then I'll download it and I'll let you know that I have it. I did follow up with Erin via email because she has some more to tell you about recording your own message. So here's what she said. She said, 
Since the quality was good when I used the laptop mic, I didn't even have to use my headset. For Macs, I saw that QuickTime and GarageBand can also record and save sound recordings. And on an iPhone, people can use the Voice Memo app. I'm going to cut in here and say that I had a conversation with Dustin, who is not only my husband, but also you know, the AV crew here for Close Horse, the podcast. And he told me that if you have a remotely newish iPhone, like anything that's come out in the past few years, the microphone on it is actually really good quality and you can record even good sounding music (laughs) using your iPhone mic. So you might want to try that. So Aaron continues, out of curiosity, I did a quick search of why the quality of phone calls seems to be so poor, and the best I got was that carriers aren't as invested in phone call sound quality since we're calling less and texting more, as well as using our smartphones for other things. This was a very cursory search for info, though. Maybe a listener who's more tech savvy would know the answer. So if you know more about why phones sound so crappy these days, because I have noticed it too, just in my personal life please reach out. Inquiring minds want to know, which by the way, I'm pretty sure that was the slogan for the National Enquirer when I was a kid. You know, the tabloid, they actually ran commercials on television during the daytime soap operas, which I love to watch with my grandma, Sandy. We were real Days of Our Lives fans. (laughs) So Aaron's message made me think so much about personal style. I mean, I've been thinking about it for days. Like, how do you get there, how you figure out what you like. And my mind just went on so many journeys as I sort of worked through this. And I wanted to know for myself, how did I get to where I am now in terms of how I dress? First off, I was like, huh, I can't believe someone would actually appreciate or notice my sense of personal style. But that's just some imposter syndrome bullshit that's been you know, perpetuated by my career in the classist and cruel world of fashion. So let's just move past that. I'm just shoving that away. You know, I've been doing this weird mental exercise since the pandemic began where whenever I think of stuff like that, that makes me feel bad, or I'll start thinking about some coworker I had who said something mean to me or whatever. I have this like imaginary barn that I picture in my mind that is not dissimilar to the Fisher-Price Little People's Barn with the two doors that opened. If you had it, you know what I'm talking about. And I always picture myself shoving that person or that idea or just whatever in that barn and then like using all my body strength to like close the doors and just jam them in there. And it makes me feel a lot better. So just a little wellness tip here from Amanda. (laughs) Wellness corner. Um, Anyway, I cannot emphasize enough that style is personal, like all caps personal. It's a reflection of who you are inside and what makes you feel your best, comfortable, what makes you what you like and don't like. It's all in there. I think there's a lot of misconception out there perpetuated by dumb consumption-driven cliches like dress for the job you want, not the one you have that imply that you are best served by dressing like someone who's not actually you. You might think that you don't care about clothes, that you just dress to blend in, that you dress for utility, whatever. These are types of personal style too, okay? Sorry, 
you're not exempt. And if you haven't guessed by now, I hate when people make the implication that caring about what you wear, that actually planning it, thinking about it is somehow shallow or indicates a lack of intelligence. I mean, I obviously say no way. Dressing for yourself in a way that makes you feel the most confident and productive, what's shallow or unimportant about that? In my late teens and early 20s, I dressed very gender neutral, which by the way, Erin, I tried to think of other adjectives to describe the way you dress and every adjective that came out was so gendered in one way or another, at least it had gender implications. Like if you said the word dapper, for example, that still has this masculine implication. So if anybody has any input there, how would you describe Aaron's style in a way that doesn't bring gender into it? Please reach out. I want to hear. Anyway, so I dressed very gender neutral for a lack of better adjective. But to be honest, when I start describing what I wore, it definitely had a very masculine vibe to it, right? So very skater inspired, like picture oversized jeans with tiny fitted shirts, a whole collection of sneakers, oversized hoodies, beanies, you get the picture. It never felt entirely comfortable to me, but it did feel strangely safe, which is ironic because on multiple occasions, weird creepy dudes did try to lure me into their vans and they referred to me as buddy when they did it. So wasn't necessarily like safer in the truest sense of the word, but from a figurative sense, it definitely felt safer. And it felt safe because it felt like it denied the vulnerability of being female. You know what I'm talking about. As I've talked about here and on social media and on my other podcasts, the department, you know, I grew up poor and I experienced a lot of physical and mental abuse until I was old enough to move out on my own. I was an outcast where I grew up, both at school and my family. Forget about the larger community. Definitely an outcast there too. And I was attempting to cope with just like an incredible burden of PTSD as an adult. And it just seemed like those feelings of pain and fear were also intrinsically girly, which is of course just some internalized misogyny there, right? (laughs) That's all that is. I was also just so hungry for friends to to sort of counteract the loneliness and otherness that had defined my life to that point. So it felt safe to dress in a way that would really firmly place me in some sort of group of friends. And I happened to be surrounded by male friends. I'm not going to lie to you. I had very few female friends for a very long time. These male friends would always tell me how, quote, different I was from other women. Ugh, you're already just groaning, right? Because, you know, I was smart and I was cool and I was funny and I knew lots about music and comics and whatever else they were prioritizing at that point. As if those are not all attributes of many, many women, right? This is, uh, hindsight is so 2020, right? But at that time, I actually did love dresses, and I will maintain that dresses are infinitely more comfortable than pants for me, and I don't understand why they aren't more common for people of all genders, because you're just just airy, comfy, nothing's digging into your underwear, or, you know, it's, I don't know, you, have to, you don't have to unbutton anything because you ate too much for dinner. <sighs> 
But while I loved dresses and pink and floral prints and flowy kimonos, strawberry prints, all the things that those of you who know me in real life or at least on social media know are my thing, I knew at that time that wearing those things would make me more vulnerable and less, I don't know, like powerful and that like super misogynist male-driven hipster culture that I was participating in. It's like I was denying my true self to pass in a culture that would have rejected me on first look if I was truly myself, which, ugh, that's just depressing, right? I remember being at a show with a male friend who said, you know, sometimes it's really hard to take you seriously as an intellectual when you wear your hair in pigtails every day. Now, I should have said, fuck you, what's your IQ, sir? But instead, I got all my hair cut off the next day. Like, this is how deep into this I was. And I'm telling you all of this because I'm hoping you can hear what my experiences were like and see yourself in them. Because maybe right now you're dressing a certain way just because you think you're supposed to, because it makes you fit in, because it makes you safer socially not because it feels right for you. The turning point for me was when my partner Ryan died, which if you've been a longtime listener, you know was a few months before our daughter was born. And I will always look at that year as a turning point for me, not because it was like a magical transformation happened all at once, because I certainly still to this day struggle with the trauma and the grief of that year, but It was a moment when I realized, I mean, I actually, this is so funny, but I literally remember laying in bed and thinking this, I I realized that I would never be like everyone else around me ever again. At that moment, it made me cry. It made me angry. It made me jealous of people whose lives were going better. Over time, that realization empowered me, but it, you know... There were steps along the way for sure. But I knew then and continued to realize this, that I was always going to be a little bit on the outside of any group of friends because now I had a kid. I had just been through some intense trauma for someone so young. Very few people my age at that point would have understood. And so when I really processed all that, when I really accepted that, it seemed pointless to keep trying to fit in. So I just started doing what I wanted style-wise. And that includes also just like doing what I want in terms of interests, you know? Like if I like that record, that's what I'm going to listen to. If I want to see that movie, I will. I don't care what anyone else says and, and so on. And, you know, I've been following that path since then and it feels it feels good. So... I switched to dresses, I grew my hair out, and it felt more true to myself. But of course, over the years, my taste has shifted somewhat while still remaining intrinsically the same. I have clothes that I have owned for well more than a decade that I still wear regularly. I know some of you do too. But at the same time, there were clothes that found their way in and out of my life at like a frightening clip. All of them were fast fashion. And I realized that most of those items were bought and then passed on pretty fast because I was trying to fit in again. Because it's 
life isn't as linear as you think it's going to be. You take 10 steps forward, but you might take two steps back. You might accidentally take a left turn for a few steps and then have to kind of work your way back onto the path. That's okay, you know? There are times where I have been infinitely more confident and secure in who I am than others. And those times have happened within the same year, you know? Furthermore, you know, working in fashion will force you to question your own taste all the time because it's literally your job to have good taste, which by now we know taste is just a classist construct anyway. When you work in fashion, there's this constant drive to be wearing the newest, latest trends all the time because literally your job depends on it, or at least that's how it seems. I think the answer is somewhere in the middle maybe closer to one under the other, depending on where you work. Bye, bye, bye. That's what we do when we work in the industry. You've heard all my other friends on the show talk about this. And when you're in the industry, it's like you're not applauded for having a sort of classic style for yourself. It's all supposed to be about the latest trends and adopting them before anyone else. I guess that brings me to a really important point when we talk about personal style. Don't give in to trends. I mean, yes, maybe the things you love will have a trendy moment. Like, that's that's great. That's kind of where I am right now with my love of patchwork and florals and prairie dresses. They happen to be on trend right now because of cottagecore, but that's going to pass. If a trend doesn't feel right to you, then don't buy into it. I, For example, I hate off-the-shoulder blouses. I feel like they have been around for years now. So I basically haven't been buying any new shirts for years because there aren't any for me, you know? And that's okay. I'm not going to suddenly say, I guess I'm going to get into off-the-shoulder blouses because that's what I'm being served. No. I think of my personal style as evolving over time, never moving away from its original DNA, but instead just growing and developing. Evolution, not change. I think figuring out your own style and sticking with it is an easy way to curb your consumption because it's kind of like, is that me? No? Okay, well, I'm not buying. Is that me? Yes? Okay, maybe I can buy it. Maybe not. We're not going to be just like buying everything that appeals to us either, right? Here's my list of recommendations for figuring out your own style and building a wardrobe you love. You know, number one is wear what feels comfortable to you. And that might take some trial and error. That's how we learn what's right for us, right? You just you got to try it first. And that's okay. Also, comfortable isn't like actual physical comfort. I mean, that's part of it. But it's also like a psychic comfort. Do you feel confident? Do you look in the mirror and say, oh my God, I look so amazing? Then you're wearing the right thing. If you feel like you can't exist without a certain level of discomfort in that outfit, then you aren't wearing the right clothing. If you look in the mirror and you're like, who is that person? Or you remotely feel like you're dressing up in someone else's clothes, that's not right for you either. Number two, ignore trends. Just as a reminder, fashion trends are primarily created by the industry to get us to buy more stuff. It's a form of planned obsolescence. When a trend passes, an item seems obsolete, uncool, appealing, ugh. 
So then we have to buy more stuff from the latest trend. Like I say, if a key pillar of your style happens to be in trend, well, maybe this is a chance to stock up for the next few years. But don't buy into something that isn't you just because you don't want to miss out. Number three, think of your style as a reflection of who you are, where you've been. I look at my wardrobe as sort of like souvenirs of like a scrapbook of all the things I've loved and done over the years. I'll look at a picture and I'll be like, oh, there's the dress I bought in Mexico City on my birthday. And then here I am wearing it in Tokyo. And I'm wearing it with these shoes that I bought in LA. And there's that hat that Dustin made me a few years ago for my birthday. My outfit tells a story of me. And I like that. It shows what I've done, what has made me happy. So I look at some of my clothes and they remind me of some of the happiest days of my life. Number four, get inspired. Watch the people around you. Look at magazines or social media. Watch movies and read books. Window shop. Look at art. Go to museums. Start a Pinterest board. Figure out what appeals to you, what feels right. Recognize that our style is sort of like taking all of the things, the places, the people that we love, everything that makes us happy, brings us joy, and putting it all in a blender. What comes out is your personal style. And like Aaron reminded us, we can also appreciate things while also realizing they aren't the right fit for us personally too. But I like to look at those things and say, what what is it about that that really resonates with me? Maybe it's that I love the color blue. Maybe it's because it's pink. Maybe there's this one little detail in there that reminds me of something I love. I would love to hear all about all of your personal styles, how you got there, how would you, how would you describe it? How has it evolved over time? You know, give me a call. I want to know. All right. Our next call is from Sophia. Hi, Amanda. This is Sophia. I love your podcast. I've been listening for a couple months now, I guess, but I'm all caught up. Um, a couple episodes back, I think it might have been like two episodes ago, you talked about how you felt like only like rich people who had a lot of stuff do the no-buy year situation. Um, and I just wanted to chime in. I am pretty poor. I'm a graduate student, and I'm doing a no-buy year um, with some exceptions, like I am allowing myself to replace clothing that wears out. Um, assuming I don't have something that can kind of stand in for it. And I guess that really is my kind of only exception, but I'm doing it for a number of reasons. One, to save money. I'm getting married later this year, and um, I'm really only a thrifter, but, you know, you go into a thrift store, and then all of a sudden you walk out with $20 worth of clothing, which adds up. Um, And then also, I'm trying to kind of define my personal style, and I feel like I need to stop inundating myself with clothing in order to do that. Uh, so I just wanted to give some input on, like, I guess kind of the perks of a no-buy year. And I know it's not for everyone, but I felt like it was kind of a fun challenge and a fun way to, like, stop constantly taking in clothing so that I could actually figure out what I liked about my closet. But that's all. Um, again, this is Sophia. Thanks. Bye. Sophia's call is such a great next step from Aaron's message that I almost feel like you two are engaging in, like, hotline collusion. <laughs> I think it's just it just proves that we're all thinking about a lot of the same stuff right now. So it's it's exciting to kind of hear everyone's thoughts all together. So 
As Sophia mentioned a few episodes ago, I talked about how I see a lot of sort of like aspirational content around this concept of buying nothing for a year. Like the New York Times, which I have a subscription to, so maybe I'm seeing a lot more of this than you might be. They love a think piece about an individual who has decided to buy absolutely nothing for a year. It's always in the like lifestyle or fashion sections. But these characters, the subjects of these profiles, they always come from a high income bracket. The New York Times knows it's you know, core audience for sure. So right before they stopped buying things for a year, they were able to stock up on, for example, a $6,000 espresso machine so they wouldn't have to go out for coffee anymore. Or they could buy a lot of expensive, well-made clothing that would certainly hold up to a year of wear, which of course, makes not buying anything for a year a lot easier. They also have the privilege of tons of free time for things like canning, cooking, combing, buying nothing groups for the things they need, etc. And these interviewees and writers seem to be completely oblivious to their privileged positions. It always feels very tone deaf to me, despite this, you know, best intentions. And they're also... You know, I'm, I'm going to be honest, they come across as pretty judgmental about consumption. And obviously, I don't like that. For those of us like Sophie who live without a lot of economic privilege, buying nothing is a lot more difficult. When your time is at a premium because you're working and caring for your family, sometimes it's a lot easier to just buy a coffee while you're out or pick up some takeout or, you know, to be honest... Sometimes a purchase makes your life a lot easier because you don't have time to troll your neighborhood Facebook group for a colander or an air mattress because you're hustling around, maybe on public transportation from job to job, from errand to errand, and it's just not realistic. Sophie brings us a much more achievable and realistic version of buy nothing, and she's got a good reason for it, right? She needs to save money for her wedding. Sometimes that's like the easiest way to sort of, I don't know, start training your brain to buy less. I know that sounds weird, but it can turn the habit of shopping into the habit of not shopping. And I like that Sophie recognizes that this is a great time to sort of sort out her personal style, like figure out what it is. You know, as I was saying earlier, often sort of our not knowing exactly what our personal style is leads us to indulge in more trends and shopping, right? That's another great reason to stop shopping. And Sophie's realistic. If something wears out, she'll replace it and not beat herself up about it. Because I think that's really important too. One of my main issues with a lot of these year of buying nothing challenges is that they often set the participant up for failure the moment the sole of their shoe falls off or all of their underwear gets shredded by the washing machine or they realize they don't have snow boots and it just snowed three feet, right? These things happen. I kind of liken it to all of those wild, ill-advised 80s diets where you could like only eat grapefruits or cabbage soup or Nutrisystem packaged meals. My grandma and my mom did that one and that food was disgusting. Of course, all of these fad diets are doomed because they don't take into account the occasional or 
often unpredictability of life, right? And that's the way I feel about these like buy nothing challenges. Sophie, I hope that you will check back in with us to let us know how your year of not buying things is going. I want to hear all about it. You're definitely going to be an inspiration for all of us. And it's almost like I planned it, but I swear I didn't. This next message from Liz applies so much to what Sophie is talking about. I can't believe how well this is working out. Thanks, everyone, for calling in. (laughs) Hey, Amanda, this is Liz. Um, I talked to you before via Instagram um, as Lizzie Tickets. Um, sorry that it took me so long to call in and uh, tell you about the local Buy Nothing group, uh, but I was all weekend busy giving away like 30 to 40 items of clothing to like seven different people um, because the group is so great. Um so the group that I use to do this is called Buying Nothing in Baltimore, um, and it's part of an international network of Buy Nothing groups organized through the Buy Nothing Project. Um, Buy Nothing groups are like they are uh, Buy Nothing groups are hyper local gift economies where people give and receive things for free. Um, and there's one, I think, almost everywhere. Um, there's probably one in in your area or your listeners' area. They have a website that is buynothingproject.org, and they have um, they have a whole list of all of the Buy Nothing groups sorted by area. So you can find the Buy Nothing group closest to you at their website. I think that they're usually Facebook groups, but that might not always be the case. I don't know how they're all run. Um, so it might depend on your country. Um, and I wanted to share with you – so after I I got on their website to um, see exactly, like, how many there were and learn more about it before I called you, um, and I wanted to read a few bits from their website that I thought you and your listeners would like because the creators seem like really thoughtful people. Um, on the Brief History page, the website says, we've invested over seven years of our hearts souls, and minds into, into sparking the Buy Nothing Project, working towards our goal of fostering an international network of diverse, inclusive, and equitable local gift economies in which people learn to trust in abundance and our shared desire to help each other through sharing. We are not an organization, a nonprofit, a company, or any kind of legal entity. We are two friends who have volunteered our time alongside a humbling network of thousands of volunteers and over a million participants who carry our original ideas forward into their own communities to bring about change. So I thought you would enjoy that because it was just two really cool friends. Um, And it's grown so much. I mean, even just the Baltimore group is 7,500 people. Um, So they just – Two people created something really huge and awesome. Another thing on their website that I liked was uh, that they reflect on their successes and their mistakes. Um, And when they first started, they saw that the hyper-local groups helped communities bond and um, grow tighter because the members knew there was only one group for them, and it's the one where they lived. And so people began to understand that buy-nothing groups are more about connections and trust between people than about just getting fast and anonymous free stuff. Um, But, and this is like a loose quote job, um, they learned that by relying on existing neighborhood maps, 
Their map of buy nothing groups began to align with unjust boundaries, including historic redlining. And this alignment amplified modern neighborhood boundaries that were originally mapped to establish and maintain a variety of injustices, including racism and socioeconomic stratification. And then they did something about it. They um, apparently trained volunteers to assist people in establishing group boundaries that were as inclusive of all groups of people as possible and wouldn't repeat historic lines of segregation ingrained within communities still. Um, and that was really cool to me because Baltimore and its residents are very much affected by redlining that happened decades ago. So I thought that was great that that came up and they were able to reflect on it and make changes in the way that the Buy Nothing groups worked. Um, anyway, I just wanted to end on um, telling you how like great my local group has been. I've given away so much stuff, like I said, this weekend, I gave away like 30 to 40 pieces of clothing to people who wanted it or people who could directly, like, uh, who could directly give it to people in need. Like, uh, someone who is a local pastor ended up taking a good amount of my stuff. Um, and when I last looked, people in Baltimore were giving away tons of like kitchen and baking tools and dishware, serving sets kids' books, a label maker, um, mirrors, mailing tubes and other shipping materials, puzzles, moving boxes, coolers, planters, and armchair, and, like, a ton of other things that um, I can't tell you about because my list is already long enough and my message is really long. So um, it, it's just a really great way to um, give things away, get things that you are looking for, and build community with your neighbors. Liz, thank you so much for calling to explain Buy Nothing Groups to us. Secondhand Month is a great time for you to familiarize yourself with the Buy Nothing Group in your area. Chances are you probably have one, and if you don't, there are ways you could start one. You can find your local group by using the buynothingproject.org directory, and don't worry, I'm going to put that link in the show notes, or just look on Facebook. This is where most of these groups live. And in fact, where I live here in Lancaster County, not only do we have multiple buy nothing groups based on town, because we have like a lot of tiny towns out here. We also have a group that is like neighbor, I think it's called like neighbors helping neighbors or something. And that's really where someone can say, hey, I really need this thing. Do you have it? And someone can give it to them. I guess that might be more like mutual aid, but it's along the same lines. As Liz mentioned, it's really important that you join the group for your area because the idea is to keep these gifts in the local community. And while you can find great new homes for your extra kitchenware, kids' toys, books, craft supplies, you name it, you can also offer your own services to help the members of your community. These gifts of self could include an evening of babysitting, a ride for an errand, help in the garden, a request for a spiritual act like prayer or meditation, really anything else that you could do to help a neighbor. Maybe shoveling snow. I've got snow on the brain. It's been snowing a lot here. A gift of talent could be, I mean, just think about your areas of expertise that could be beneficial, you know, tutoring, crochet lessons, maybe help with taxes, all of that kind of stuff. And a gift of time could be, you know, someone to go jogging with, maybe having meetups for coffee and tea, playdates for your kids or even your dog. 
the important thing is that all things are being focused on your immediate community and the members of the group. Conversely, you can be gifted these physical objects, expertise, and gifts of self. It's a great step one when you need a specific item. See if someone there has something that they don't need anymore before moving on to the thrift store or Facebook marketplace. Obviously, I'm thinking secondhand first here as much as you can, right? Once again, this is not a selling group. These are people who are realizing that they no longer have need for a specific item, but they know it could be valuable and useful to other members of the community. I mean, I see so much furniture moving there. I'm all, all of the cooking things, which is great because we're all cooking more than ever now. And not everyone was doing a lot of cooking before the pandemic. So a lot of you probably need some things still to fully do it right. But just to underscore again, these things are being given away, hence the term gift. I also like that these gifts don't differentiate between need and want, which, well, good luck truly parsing out the difference between those two terms in your own personal life. From the Buy Nothing Group website, they say, despite the fact that we all have needs and wants and an innate ability and desire to both give and receive, there are no prescribed ways to do this on equal footing person to person. We don't differentiate between wants and needs here in the Buy Nothing Project. In an effort to create equal footing, all requests are welcome, whether they are to meet a need or a want, and all offers are in control of the people doing the giving. Givers are always free to choose the recipients of their offers using whatever standards they desire. And that can get dicey, I'm not going to lie. I have seen some disagreements about that. Uh, It's not like a first come, first serve sort of thing that we might expect it would be. But the people doing the gifting, they're really putting some thought into it, which I like. I like that. It's not like someone's calling dibs. It's supposed to be meaningful and impactful. I love so many things about the Buy Nothing groups, from the sense of community and sort of shared wealth and belongings, to the idea that it was started by two people who just really cared about an idea. And now these Buy Nothing groups exist all over the world. If that doesn't inspire you that you, that our community can't make change out there, then I don't, I don't know what will. I also want to touch on redlining for a minute. Liz used this term in her call and you might not be familiar with it. So let's travel back in time to a long time ago. to 1933. And at that time, the U.S. was experiencing a massive housing shortage coming out of the Great Depression. Why? Because so many people had lost their homes during the Depression. The New Deal, right? You've heard of the New Deal. It contained housing and mortgage programs that were supposed to help fix this shortage. But what they really did is segregate Black communities from white communities even more than they already were. Per NPR, quote, in the aftermath of the Great Depression, the U.S. government set out to evaluate the riskiness of mortgages and left behind a stunning portrait of the racism and discrimination that has shaped American housing policy. In the late 1930s, the infamous Homeowners Loan Corporation started grading neighborhoods into four categories based in large part on their racial makeup. In fact, I saying in large part is kind of an understatement here. You'll, you'll re- realize this as I continue. So 
A grades went to white, quote, in-demand neighborhoods, which was really just a classist way of saying wealthier neighborhoods. Poorer neighborhoods, they got lower grades. But regardless of class or income, neighborhoods with minority occupants were marked in red, hence the term redlining, and they were considered high risk for mortgage lenders. Once again, no matter how much money those residents had to pay a mortgage, they could be making a middle class or an upper middle class income. The color of their skin dictated the riskiness of their mortgage. Even one home owned by a person of color in an otherwise white neighborhood would get the entire area marked high risk, which meant the letter grade of D. This essentially robbed black people and really all people of color of one of the greatest means of financial security, which is owning a home. Now, I know you're probably listening to this and being like, well, I will probably never get to own a home the way things are going, and I often feel the same way. But in the middle of the century, owning a home was pretty standard, right? Unless you weren't white. It also put all of these people in highly predatory situations like on contract housing, where basically the occupant didn't own the house, but bore all of the responsibilities of actual ownership, like, you know, maintenance. So, you know, the plumbing, fixing the roof, etc. All the things that when you are a tenant, you technically are not supposed to have to be responsible for. Now, I know there's exceptions there too, depending on where you live or who your landlord is. So they would be responsible for all of this as if they were the homeowner, but they could be booted at any moment, and then they would lose every dime that they had put into that home. The white people who actually owned these homes were, unfortunately, and maybe also unsurprisingly, not generally kind, compassionate people. So they would often toss out an occupant with no notice, you know, and no, like, hey, here's some reimbursement for the new roof you put on here. Nothing. When black people and other people of color were able to buy a home, they only had access to highly predatory loans with crazy high interest and aggressive terms. They also could not buy homes outside of these high-risk neighborhoods because whites would do anything they could, even resorting to violence, to keep them out of their neighborhoods. Now, ostensibly, this was under the guise of protecting property values, which, to be fair was a reality based on everything I've told you already, but they were also just being plain old racist. So, you know, they had two motivations there. So people of color could only buy homes in these D neighborhoods. So they would do that. And they would find that their property values continued to fall over the years. These property values would fall so much that they would be unable to refinance their homes to cover things like upkeep and renovations. So like painting, roof repairs, new windows, all the things that you do have to put into a home over time. So what would happen is like whole neighborhoods would kind of fall into disrepair because the owners couldn't afford to fix up their houses. They were paying these crazy high mortgages and they had no wiggle room, right? So then the property values in those neighborhoods would fall even more. It was just like a vicious cycle. The writer Ta-Nehisi Coates said in his article, The Case for Reparations, which was in The Atlantic, he said, 
Neighborhoods where black people lived were rated D and were usually considered ineligible for FHA backing. Black people were viewed as a contagion. Redlining went beyond FHA-backed loans and spread to the entire mortgage industry, which was already rife with racism, excluding black people from most legitimate means of obtaining a mortgage. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that even to this day, it is harder for black people to get a mortgage than it is for white people. And we see the effects of this redlining that happened almost a century ago in full focus today in 2021. You know, we've got food deserts, which are neighborhoods without any easy access to fresh foods, aka grocery stores. We see underfunded public school systems, which keep their students in basically a cycle of poverty because they're not getting enough education. We see a lack of environmental justice across the United States where companies are doing shitty things like putting landfills and trash incinerators in black neighborhoods along with a lot of other toxin spewing industries. You know, this goes all the way back to one of our early episodes with Michelle when we were talking about denim and how even here in the United States, when denim is dyed and washed and, you know, all the other things that happen to denim, when it happens here in the United States, these facilities are always in poorer neighborhoods. We also then see predatory businesses like dollar stores. I seriously could do a whole episode about how sketch dollar stores are. They step in to sell the residents of these poor neighborhoods lower quality products at a premium price. And so there are a lot of really great business reasons if you're an unethical capitalist, to keep this system going, right? You've got cheap real estate, access to the pockets of poor people who can't afford to go somewhere else, and you've got just great spots to park your factory where no one in the neighborhood is going to get too bent out of shape about it, and if they do, no one's going to listen. Did you know that the Pew Research Center estimates that white households are worth roughly 20 times as much as black households? talking about the United States here. While only 15% of whites have zero or negative wealth, more than a third of blacks do. If you haven't read The Case for Reparations yet, I'm going to share it in the show notes. I, I think it's a really great introduction to the ways in which racism is actually systemic and has set up black people and really all people of color for failure for generations. Now, Maybe you're wondering, why is Amanda talking about systemic racism on a podcast about fashion and sustainability? Well, I mean, first off, Clothes Horse is about way more than that, but (laughs) it's really important to have these conversations about race, and it's important to work together to dismantle the intrinsically racist systems that keep people in poverty that prevent them from having access to opportunities and good health care, healthy foods, education, good-paying jobs, you name it, because so much of the profiteering of the existing fashion and retail industries depends on perpetuating these systems. For example, Retailers can continue to pay retail and warehouse workers minimum wage as long as we all hold on to that tired, old, racist, and yes, classist idea that these jobs are, quote, unskilled labor. 
Um, companies can continue to operate loud, toxic washing and dye facilities in low-income neighborhoods as long as we ignore the clear link between racism, classism, and environmental justice. And of course, everyone can continue to sell us shoddy future garbage as long as we look the other way when it all gets carted off to landfills in low-income neighborhoods. So much of the success of all retail businesses, from clothing to office supplies to furniture to, well, everything else, relies on the vast majority of consumers being either apathetic or oblivious when it comes to racism and classism. It's all connected. Okay, Next, we have a message from our good friend, Gabriella Antonis, and she's going to tell us about a really terrible nightmare job tryout situation. Hi, Clothes Horsies and Amanda. It's Gabriella Antonis again. I was just listening to the episode 49 of the pod, and when Kyle was on there describing how white supremacists have co-opted the trad slash Ivy League menswear trend, It reminded me of my own nightmare menswear experience with a local menswear business here in Fells Point, Maryland. Fells Point is in Baltimore City and was the cool place to hang out like 20 years ago. Now the hot place is Hamden, but Fells Point is still my favorite neighborhood and like it's got a lot of history and it's like super haunted. And anyway, um, what happened was I went there to apply for a job and I contacted the owner of the blue. I found them on Instagram. And then I went there for an interview. When I went there, the owner, a white man, introduced, um, I'll call him C, introduced, he introduced me to the only other person that worked at the storefront, who was another white man. I can't even remember his name, to be honest. And I showed C my portfolio and a bunch of samples I had brought in. He liked them all. Then he said, can I come back in and work for free for a couple hours, basically? Now, I want to say this is not uncommon in the fashion industry. Places will try to get you to do some work for free, maybe for a whole day, even as a trial period. And or even if they do decide to hire you after just um, seeing your portfolio and samples, they'll still say, okay, we'll hire you, but it's on a trial basis. And it's like you suck, we're firing you, whatever. So... This happened to me at a place in Philly as well that was old school, and so were the customers. That place was called Agostino. It was in the main line, honey, um, of PA. And so, like, because when the place does that, does uh, tailoring or what they call haute couture, um, but it's only haute couture if it's from France. If it's champagne, it's only champagne. If it's from champagne, France. If it's not from made there, it's sparkling wine. Um, places like that think that they can get away with this. There's another place in Baltimore run by a woman, um, well, Baltimore County, run by a woman who, even though I came in there in 2018 for Shadow College with my fashion design bachelor of science degree and all my stuff um, that had been on the runway at New York Fashion Week already at that point, she still tried to act like she couldn't pay me to work for her. You know, she had too many other people working there. Um till I did an internship with her. I had to tell her that it's only an internship if I get college credit. Otherwise, it's illegal to work for free, and I wouldn't be doing that. Even the factory that sent me there told me that I should never work for free. 
He was embarrassed. So even with me having these experiences, I still came back to see and the menswear tailing place in Fells Point the next week so I could do some tasks and they could see my work and if it, and if I was fast enough for them. You know, I was willing to do this because I told them, you know, I wasn't going to work for less than 18 an hour or whatever fucking salary, like, we agreed on. Like, this was going to be a big girl job. It wasn't going to be some minimum wage shit. Like, I'm doing highly skilled things, like, with my degree. Even 18 isn't – I feel like minimum wage should be $20, but that's a whole other topic. So, um what what they said would only be an hour or so of work was really much longer. They had me do a couple of things. I ended up working for way more than an hour or so for free, which I wasn't keen on doing that. But I had been on other interviews where they asked me to do sewing stuff right on the spot, whether it's on machines or by hand. And um, this situation, I was left alone. And when I got finished hemming the pants, the waist of the pants, and – I mean, when you do the waist, you have to do, like, the butt seam, too. Like, you can't just take stuff off the sides. Like, and anyway, so it's more work than it sounds like, as everything is in fashion. Um, I got finished hemming the pants, the waist of the pants, um, the center seam, and making the adjustments to the cuffs, the cuffs of the blazer to go with the suit pants, which are lined, of course. So you have to take the lining apart. You're basically working backwards and have to put it back together perfectly. When you're done with the alterations, this man told me I took too long. Basically, it was his call to not hire me. I couldn't even talk to the boss, C, about it because he had left to go to a business dinner. It was just me and this guy. So I brought up to him over and over that I was good enough for this job. I deserve to be paid to do what I went to school for. And how are people in our generation supposed to learn these techniques from the old guards like their Italian tailor, before they pass away and they're gone forever. I'm like, if you don't give me the chance to learn these extra advanced skills that he claims to have that I don't, how can we bring tailoring into the next phase of fashion? Some things you are supposed to learn in school, which I did. I learned a lot. But some things are on-the-job training. The only thing that requires a special degree in fashion design is costume design. I've never heard of a degree for tailoring specifically, so this guy can fuck off, basically. I hope he's listening. I hope he finds Clothes Horse one day and listens to this. Anyway, I felt like it was totally patriarchal, which it was, and this guy just thought it was okay to treat me like trash. I think because he didn't want me to show him up at his job or he didn't want to, the boss to become less reliable on him. Basically, him telling me I couldn't have the job ended up becoming this long debate that felt like the breakup, the breakup of a toxic relationship because I was guilting him and he wouldn't let me walk away. Also, it was dark by the time I left and he was the only one that was able to open the gate to get my car out. So the argument about his privilege and sexism spilled into the parking lot. It was hella awkward. So, um, when Kyle said that stuff about the Ivy League trend white supremacists, it all just clicked into place for me. This man was gatekeeping and trying to make me feel like I didn't belong in a world that I was more than qualified to be a part of. The fact is I had worked my ass off to be where I am, and I would have been an asset to that company. But this is another reason why I think women's wear is just a more beautiful place to be than men's wear in general. Sorry if this was a long message, but um, at the end of the day, this is a classist story, sexist, white supremacist. Like, I wouldn't have wanted to work at a place stuck in the dark ages anyway let me know what you guys think okay love you all bye 
you know, the part of the story where Gabriella talks about the guy having to unlock the gate to get to her car. That is just like so, so cringy, so awkward, so painful for me. I almost can't even take it. You know, like sometimes you'll be watching like, I don't know, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is a show I love, but it'll just get so awkward that I literally have to get up and leave the room just for a minute. (laughs) I can't handle it. And this is even harder because I actually know Gabriella. Gabriella does hit on something that happens a lot in the fashion industry, and that is free labor in the guise of just another part of the interview process. Like, why is Gabriella altering an entire pair of pants for free? Yeah, I get that they had to see if she had the sewing skills for the job, but she should still be paid for that work because probably they were paid for those pants, right? And this, as Gabriella mentioned, is so common in the industry. We've talked a lot about how the profits in the fashion industry are a direct result of exploiting workers in factories, warehouses, and retail stores, but it also happens a lot in the office setting too. I mean, on a larger scale, it's often like cutting down the headcount in the office so that everybody is doing the jobs of two to three or four people, right? We're also talking about a lot of unpaid interns working way more than they should be, or people like Gabriella mentioned being hired as unpaid interns even though they have already finished school. Okay, so basically what you're saying there, like Gabriella said, is, oh, you just want free work. Well, that's illegal, right? It's still happening all the time. I get to talk to a lot of different people working on Close Horse from all over the country who work in the industry in a variety of different capacities. And they also have told me stories of being like, okay, well, you're technically your job title is intern, but you are doing, you know, like true full-time team member work for like a year or two. Like, what? Why is that happening? On a lesser scale... There's this common, I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It's a scam of interviewing a candidate for buying or design and having them do just this like elaborate project. And these projects will often show like actual styles, fabrics, sketches, marketing strategies, etc. for a potential collection. Basically handing over an entire delivery of ideas like really hashed out to the last detail to a potential interviewer. These projects are so much work. Seriously, some of the projects I have done have taken 40, 60, 80 hours of work to complete. So imagine the frustration and disappointment when the company then totally ghosts a candidate. And then, I mean, that would be bad enough, right? Because that's like really rude and it happens so much. And then fast forward three months later, just enough time to get that product made. And that candidate's entire project is alive and well as a new product on the brand site. Now that sounds incredibly unethical. And you're you're probably saying, there's no way that happens, right? Well, I'm going to tell you that it happens all the time. And I'm also just going to go ahead and say here that Reformation is infamous in LA for engaging in this kind of stuff. I actually, you know, last year when 
ref was blowing up. What was that? Like June, you know, all, I mean, like all the toxic stuff about the company came out. I commented on a post about it, just like, wow, you forgot to add how they like steal everyone's ideas from all these projects and ghost them. And this was something I'd heard from a lot of people that I know. And easily 20 other strangers told me that the same thing had happened to them in the comments or by messaging me. This hasn't happened to me directly, like a ref stealing my project idea, because I swear I'm one of a tiny handful of fashion employees in LA that has never interviewed for Reformation. But man, it has happened to so many friends and former coworkers. And it's not just Reformation, okay? I had a creative director once ask me if we could just use an idea from a potential candidate's project without hiring them, would they notice? And what was the legality there? And I was like, well, you know, I don't know if it's illegal, but it's unethical. That doesn't mean much to some people. But, you know, it's it's definitely not – it's not good karma, I guess, if you believe in that. It's definitely just not the right thing to do. But it happens all the time. I would be curious to know if this happens outside of the fashion industry or if you work in the industry yourself and this has happened to you. So please reach out and tell us about it. Okay, we have one last message. Well, it's really just a conversation that I had with Sammy of Dylan Page about Limited 2 and its transition to justice. And there's a mystery involved that we need your help solving. So that's why I'm including this here. You have to help us find the answer. So... You worked for Limited to Two when it became Justice, which, like, what year was that? Oh, my goodness. Okay. I started working – I got to think, how old am I now? <laughs> I started working there when I was, like, 16. It was probably when I was 18, so that would have been, like, 2008. I felt like it was, like, very sudden. Like, it was just, like – I, and granted, like, it's not like I was buying a lot of stuff at Limited 2 at that point, but it just seemed like one yeah. day I went to the mall and it was Justice. And it was like, there was no, like, big announcement about it or anything. It's just, like, that's just, it had a different sign and it looked different. Yeah. So we were told that we would be getting Justice products into the store. And so we started carrying that for a little bit of time. And that's when we really saw, like, a huge quality shift because between Limited 2 products and Justice products. And... It was so wild because you could tell that the screen printing on it was just awful. And, like, people would, like, they would wash the shirt and they would bring it back in. And it, I swear to you, the shirt would have, like, shrunk two sizes. Oh. And I would have to look at people and be like, I'm so sorry. I literally don't know what to tell you because I had worked at Limited 2 for, like, three years at that point. And I was like, I don't know I don't know what's happening. And then they told us that we'd be getting more Justice products in. And then shortly after that, it was we were switching to Justice. And we literally just saw, like, everything, like, crumble and fall apart. Like, the Justice products were so much cheaper. The, even, like, the makeup they sold there, I would legit, like, tell people, don't put that on your kid. I was like, I don't trust this. Like, it, I was like, this is not, this is not safe. Like, please don't buy this for your kids. And I felt terrible, but I, at the time, was going through, going into like cosmetology school, and I was like learning so much, and I was like, this is, this is scary. 
I'm like, they, if this is what the quality of the clothes is, I don't want to know what's in this makeup. And you, we literally just like saw everything like change so quickly. And the craziest thing is, is the store, the mall that was like the closest to us, they had a limited to and a justice in that store. What? And we were told, yeah, we were told, no, this gets really weird. Ready for this? Yeah. We were told that nobody was going to lose their jobs in the transition. And so at one point, the mall that was closest to us had two justices in their store, and like what? in their mall. And so if I ever had to go work at the other, like at the other mall, I would be like, wait, which justices am I going to? And it lasted like that for, I think, like three years before they finally switched just to one. And I just like, it's so sad because I limited to like, yes, it was fast fashion, but, like, if a mom bought a side, like, a pair of jeans for her kid, like, her other kids, like, five years later could wear that pair of jeans. Right, Like, right. they would last. Like, limited to clothing did did not, like, burn out easily. And so I shouldn't say wear out, not burn out. But <laughs> with Justice, it was like, if your kid got to wear it twice, like, I'm so happy that it lasted you two wears and it didn't fall apart. Right. So we saw a major shift in quality. Why did they name it Justice? Because that is a really heavy name for a children's clothing store. That is such a good question. And you know what the crazy thing is, is we were told when we were getting our Justice that we would also be carrying little boys clothes, too. Oh, really? I totally forgot about this until you asked that question. And we, I never saw a single like boy outfit come into the store so I wonder if they were trying to like change things up that way and it was just like something that never came into like fruition for them um but yeah I don't justice is a heavy name for a kid's clothing store I know the first time I saw the sign I was yeah right and it was so confusing because like it's in this font right this like girly whimsical font and it's like in front of a store that is from the outside mostly pink, you know, yeah. I was like, what? I'm so confused about why they named it this. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do some Googling and find it because I couldn't find any information before, but maybe I wasn't looking hard enough because it makes I, no sense to me. I have questions out too. I'm like, I need to know now. <laughs> and yeah, see? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that we had, like, um, there was always, like, the J is for this and this is for that. I'm going to have to, like, look into that now. Be like, what what do all those things stand for? Because our DMs would, like, quiz us on that and be like, what what does each of these words stand for? Now I have to know. I know, I know. It was so whimsical looking, and then there's, like, this cute little heart, and then... (laughs) What what was the justice they were doing? I was just saying, what are these five-year-olds taking? I mean, I have easily been wondering about this for at least 10 years, so I need to know. Yes. (laughs) It's like my goal for this month is to find out why it's called justice, because it makes no sense. I think of it as, like, the weirdest rebrand I've ever seen. Ever. For sure. I don't, I literally don't understand why they would have created 
and like limited to and then create their own competitor for themselves at like a cheaper <laughs> worse price point and then stick that name on there it makes no sense to me I mean I it's like I was telling you before we started recording that they would do this kind of stuff all the time where they were like trying to pin Victoria's Secret Beauty against yeah. Bath and Body Works and it's like why like you each customer only has so much money to spend so they're not going to go to both of those stores and buy basically the same thing why would you do that so i i don't know i mean i think it's just bad retail strategy i mean we still see that kind of stuff now you know bad marketing yeah yeah (laughs) well i promise i'm going to look into this justice mystery because we need to know I need to know, too. I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah, if you think of anything, please message me because this is so mysterious. It's the greatest mystery of our time, I think. So I Googled my butt off, and I could not figure out why it's called justice. So if you've worked there or you know someone who has, please reach out to me. We need to know. Sammy and I need to know, and now probably all the listeners need to know, why is a little girl's clothing store called Justice? (laughs) It's so weird. (laughs) I will tell you that Sammy is right. For several years, Justice was trying to sell boys' clothes under the name Brothers, but it just didn't work. I mean, The line was only sold in about 200 of the total 1,000 Justice locations in the U.S. It makes sense to me that it was a hard sell. Most little boys, this is the era of your little boyhood where you think girls are gross and everything girly is embarrassing. So most little boys do not want to go to the pink glittery paradise that is Justice. I mean, Dustin has gone to Justice with me because sometimes I just like to look at the stuffed animals and pens there to cheer myself up. I just like looking at pastel glittery things. What do you want from me? And Dustin has seemed to enjoy himself, but we're also two grown-ups shopping at a little girl store. So, you know, we're freaks anyway. (laughs) Apparently at some point there were a handful of standalone brothers stores, but I couldn't find very much information about them. So if you have seen one of these or worked in one of them or even bought something there, please let me know. And as Sammy mentioned, Justice used to be called Limited 2. It's a long, complicated story, but basically, very long story short, Limited 2 was once owned by L Brands, which is the parent company of Limited, Express, Bath & Body Works, Victoria's Secret, Abercrombie, at one point Lane Bryant, I'm sure I'm missing some brands there because they kind of owned everything for a while. In 1999, Limited 2 spun off into its own company, which is something that L Brands has done a lot. Like they did that with Victoria's Secret. They did it with Abercrombie. I don't think they did it with Bath & Body Works. Anyway, it spun off into its own company. Still technically... For all intents and purposes, owned by L Brands, but maybe not like in a from a paperwork perspective. A few years later, that company changed its name to Tween Brands. All of the limited two stores gradually transitioned into Justice stores between 2008 and 2010, and in 2009, Dress Barn bought Tween Brands and therefore Justice. This definitely changed 
the product in those stores for sure. As Dress Barn obviously switched everything from that L Brands supply chain to their supply chain, based on my knowledge of the industry, Dress Barn product and what they could get from their factories and suppliers is not as good as what you could get from L Brands. Now, of course, all bets are off in 2021 because it's the Wild West out there and almost everything you can buy in most of these stores is terrible. But 10 years ago, there would have been a marked difference. In 2011, Dress Barn and Justice were acquired by Asana Group, which owned so many brands like Ann Taylor, Loft, Lane Bryant. Last year, Asana filed for bankruptcy, closing tons of Ann Taylor and Lane Bryant stores. They also owned a chain called Catherine's. I believe they closed all of those. And through the balance of 2020, Asana also closed all the Justice stores, which I feel kind of sad about. The Justice website currently says, quote, this is the start of something good. As we enter an exciting new chapter for the Justice brand, we want you to know that we're still here for you and all your girls. Amazing new things are coming soon. So who knows what's going on there? You know, maybe Justice will come back better than ever, but will we ever know why it's called that? (laughs) I need to know. It's such a weird concept. Anyway, that concludes another 100% hotline episode of Close Horse. You know, I still can't believe that I get enough messages from all of you to do a whole episode based on just your calls and questions. I feel really, really lucky to have all of you. So thank you so much and keep calling and messaging. Our next episode will be all about secondhand, so please reach out with all your own comments, questions, and experiences when it comes to buying, selling, and tracking down secondhand stuff, or cool stuff you're making out of secondhand materials. I want to hear what you have to say, and we have a lot of secondhand to talk for the rest of the month. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell your friends. Just a reminder that the Clothes Horse blog, it launches on 214, aka Valentine's Day, aka this Sunday. And that's clotheshorse.world. So get ready to be refreshing that page every day. We already have so many amazing submissions from all of you. I've been so excited to see the final layouts, and I'm so grateful for the team working on the blog. We've got Meg, Haley, Carrie, and Kate. They are so talented, and I I just can't wait for you to see everybody's hard work on Sunday. It's, oh, it's coming together so well. And you know what? It's not too late to get involved because we're going to need new content constantly. So don't worry about being late to the party. If you're interested, you know, just email me at amanda at clotheshorse.world and, you know, I'll get you all set up. Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. I'll share a link in the show notes. The group is getting bigger like every 
day. It's very exciting. And I don't, you know, I don't want to overstate this. I don't think this is hyperbole. It's the best thing happening on Facebook right now. If you need a new podcast because you're running out of television or you've listened to all the podcasts ever, check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We're in the midst of a series about the 2000s. It's a series with no end in sight because there's so much to talk about. And in this week's episode, we talked all about hipster racism, which is really just racism, uh, skinny jeans, PBR, and so much more. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 